welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. This gospel that we've been studying for a long time now, what a wonderful gospel it's been. And as I mentioned in our message last week, you know, what we believe about the resurrection, it affects our behavior and and society surrounding us, and and nowhere is this more true than our concern uh, and care for the body of our deceased loved ones. In fact, it is a Western biblical worldview that, that has most influenced our culture's demand that uh, remains of fallen soldiers. They, they must be returned home uh, with a casket, uh, a flag draped upon them, and uh, we, we demand that our boys and ladies, uh, women, come home. This same concern is also on display at Pearl Harbor, and that memorial there, the USS Arizona. We also see it in, uh, uh, in France, in the war cemeteries, uh, of those who are buried there uh, after the invasion of Normandy. So we see this displayed uh, all around our, our land, and uh, we see it at our own grave sites. In fact, I have a picture here you can look at. That's my mom and dad. Love how mom had put at the bottom there for all my family members to remember when they, uh, when they visit, says, uh, the way, the truth, the life, Jesus Christ. And we do these things. I know this, this story is not unique to me. Each of you and your own families have similar stories uh, of how you remember your parents. Why do we do this? Why do we do these things? It is due to, there is a cultural intuition. It's influenced in large part by us Christians. That there exists a future for our bodies. There's a future for our bodies. And as I said before, how we treat the human remains, it indicates more about us, really, than the destiny of those who had passed, or in what way they passed, whether it was at sea, at battle, or any other way. It says something about us. God is going to raise the dead. He will raise the dead. Societies influenced by other religions, or the many who are void of religion... They don't always behave this way. The atheistic worldview of Nazi Germany. It caused uh, those in power there to heap bodies into large graves covered with bulldozers. They didn't have any respect for the bodies. Similar behavior has been recorded in, in brutal Islamic regimes in the Middle East, in Iraq, and in Syria. Among the Asian nations... Most are influenced by reincarnation. They've adopted many strange behaviors, really too many to list. Many of you traveled there. Uh, one extreme example, uh, some Buddhists in Tibet still practice what is called sky burial. Have you ever heard of sky burial before? But sky burial is when the bodies of deceased loved ones are taken to rocky mountaintops and, and, and birds are allowed to devour them is their belief that as the vultures 
carry this away that this is, this is instrumental in the process of reincarnation as they fly off into the sky. So how we behave is a reflection of what we believe. As we turn to Luke chapter 24, I'd like us to recognize that what we believe affects our behavior. It affects the behavior of those around us. The, the fate of our human bodies, you know, it is no more prominently displayed uh, than through Christ's resurrection from the dead. Um, we preach there will be a physical, bodily resurrection from the dead, uh, not only for Christ, but for every single one of us, uh, either to glory or to eternal damnation. There will be a resurrection of every body. And as the West moves Further from Christianity, or more post-Christian, as some describe it, there have entered in now all kinds of different alternative ideas of what happens to our body, if anything at all. You know, in the uh, in very liberal branch of Lutheranism that I grew up in, that I've described before, we never received clarification growing up what happens to the physical body. It was never clarified in any way what happens to that. Uh, I, as I remember... Eternity was explained as, you know, we, we probably won't need our bodies in heaven. You know, they're probably going to be floating around on a cloud, you know, would be one explanation of that. There are many who've, who've embraced that idea that we, we just go to heaven and, and maybe we kind of float around as disembodied spirits, sit on clouds. Sounds funny, but many don't have any idea what happens to the body. There's also those who think that his very common error today, very common error, that we die and then become angels. You see that in the movies everywhere. That's Clarence, right? Clarence had to earn his wings and it's a beautiful life. That is very broadly believed, that we sprout wings and we become angels. People don't realize that angels are a different created life form by God. Humans are separate from the order of angels uh, and our deceased relatives. They are not omniscient. They do not take on uh, attributes of God. They don't know everything that's going on, and uh, they don't return to spy on us. Praise the Lord for that. You think, Grandma, how embarrassing certain things would be. Notice we only think that they're watching us when we're doing something good. We're doing something bad, we would be very embarrassed by that. No, Scripture assures us, teaches us that after death, our souls are immediately in the presence of God. To be absent of the body is to be present with Christ in some intermediate form. Scripture isn't exactly clear on that, but we will be in heaven where we will await the return of Christ when we will be reunited with our physical bodies and they will be resurrected exactly as we see Christ's body resurrected today. That's, where we, that's the direction we're going. Uh, let's read the text first so we can discuss the implications of his bodily resurrection. In Luke 24, beginning in verse 1, it's first referring to the women from the end of chapter 23. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they, referring to the women, came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. 
But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. You know, we learned last week that the physical resurrection of Christ's body, it is essential for salvation. It's not optional. We, we must also believe that we will be raised. That we will be raised, for Paul says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So the dead must be raised or else Christ himself has not been raised. In that case, we find out that our faith, it's worthless. Uh, uh, if, we've, if we've hoped in this life only, we are to be of all men most pitied, Right? So doubting the resurrection, that's a deal-breaker, folks. That is a deal-breaker. Growing up in my church, being unsure, that's a problem. That is a problem. People who think we turn into angels, apparently also they do not think our bodies are raised from the dead. And so far, nobody in our passage, nobody in our passage believes it either. Matthew indicates the women had come to the grave having purchased some spices. Maybe they planned to mix these spices with the aloe and and myrrh that had been, maybe perhaps some of it left behind by Nicodemus to treat the body. I don't know for sure. What I do know is they had hoped to prepare his body. They had hoped to find his body uh, before it began to decompose. You know, this is only about 36 hours, as we spoke last Sunday, since Christ was laid in the grave. Late Friday night, this is early Sunday morning. And they all came very early at dawn. And in fact, the, the passage, I think it's in Matthew, that refers to Mary Magdalene, it says that she traveled in the dark. She left very early in order to get to the gravesite, the tomb, at first day break. Uh, Obviously, as time would go on, as the sun would continue to warm, they feared the body would decay. You might recall uh, Martha, when Jesus asked that uh, the stone be rolled away from the tomb of Lazarus, that, that, that he might resurrect Lazarus from the dead, Martha said, you know, by no means, Lord, don't do that. It's, it's been four days, right? I think the King James says, he stinketh. Right? So they were warned by the fourth day, we know that, that it would be a problem to treat the body. They didn't even want to open the gravesite, so they wanted to get this done quickly. 
Preparing a dead body for burial, it wasn't a new experience for most women in that era. It was something that people typically and traditionally did for their own families. They didn't have a whole industry built around preparing these bodies that, that charge us thousands and thousands, right, in order to do this work for us. It was routine. Many of these women had probably done this before. They came this morning, this first Sunday morning, from different homes. Joanna, if you remember, this is probably the Joanna that was uh, among the... Uh, her husband was probably the steward for Herod. So they came from different places this morning. Some probably met up along the way uh, toward the grave. Uh, Mary arrived first. Mary Magdalene arrived first. And in John 20, it says that the stone, when she arrived, was already rolled away. Already rolled away. The tomb was empty. Christ is already risen from the dead, right there at first daybreak. And, and folks, by the way, this is, this is one of the reasons, actually the primary reason, that, um, that there have been many kind of myths that have arisen over the years, but this is the primary reason that many churches, many traditions today um, celebrate an Easter sunrise service. That's the reason. Uh, these women arrived early. They found the tomb empty at daybreak. Uh, for centuries now, this tradition has been of Easter sunrise service. Sunrise service, just because it's out there, and I know it's, it's floating around and circulated, uh, sunrise service is not an adaptation of a pagan ritual that worshipped a sun god named Eoster as, as facing the sun in the east. Some say that Christians on Easter morning, when they have an Easter sunrise service, uh, I've heard in, ma- in many different ways and forms that Christians are vicariously worshiping the sun and they don't even know it. That, that doesn't make sense in itself. But there, there, there exists no historical evidence, no evidence of that ancient goddess, that Saxon goddess by that name. That is an unsubstantiated myth. Some pastors keep repeating again and again I guess to demean the other churches that are able to work, wake up early on Easter. I, I don't know. But, but the claim is folklore. Christians are not worshiping the sun. Sunrise service is a godly tradition meant to commemorate how the women found the grave empty already at daybreak. Um, do I want to start that tradition here? No. No. <laughs> I like the Easter breakfast that we do. That, that, that's, that's better. That, that starts at 9, right? Yeah. I prefer our tradition. Also, to, to kind of debunk a, a further misunderstanding, this resurrection morning, it's, a, it's the time when biblical worship, true worship, transitioned from Saturday to Sunday. Saturday to Sunday, first day of the week. You know, God decided that he wanted to distinguish Christians from the legalistic traditions in the Sabbath days and the, uh, the, the Judaism that was practiced previously. Our Sabbath rest is no longer experienced in a day, folks. Our, our rest, as Hebrews 4 tells us, is experienced in Christ. We rest from the law. Not in a day any longer. Uh, Colossians 2 verse 16, let no one judge you by a Sabbath day, right? We aren't judged by the, the day that we worship 
any longer, and we rest entirely from the law and all of the tenets of the law, um, the, the, uh, the Mosaic tenets of that Judaism, we rest in the finished work of Christ. It appears, uh, as we look at history and in Scripture, it appears that the apostles did for a season, for a time, remain teaching at the temple, uh, but they also met separately, and they broke bread on the first day of the week. So Christ's church has always, you're going to hear all kinds of folklore out there, Christ's church has always, from day one, gathered to worship Jesus on Sunday. But here's a warning. Sunday is not the new Sabbath day, okay? We don't rest in a day, and Sunday was not first commanded by Emperor Constantine in 312 A.D. That's another one out there that we, we've been commanded on Sunday uh, to worship, uh, or commanded by our, uh, Constantine to worship on Sunday, and we're breaking the Sabbath, it has been claimed. Meeting on Sunday is just simply what the church has always done. It's what they've always done. Jesus rose on the first day of the week. Each time that he appears to his disciples, as recorded in Scripture, and there's a day attached to it, it's always on the first day of the week. In Acts 20, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says that in Troas, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. Then in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, which we'll look at closely next week, uh, the day of our congregational meeting, by the way. Please, please be here for the congregational meeting, uh, dinner afterwards, and then, of course, uh, the meeting itself. We'll be looking at 1 uh, Corinthians 16.2 next week. And there, Paul commanded all churches that a collection be gathered for the poor. On the first day, he says, Paul writes, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also, on the first day of every week, you are to set aside... As the Lord prospers you, set aside and safe. So Sunday has always been the typical day for Christian worship. Always has from this empty grave. In in Revelation 1 verse 10, the Apostle John refers to it as the Lord's Day. It is the day that he was raised. It is the Lord's Day. But if any man be contentious, okay, Romans 14 tells us, one person regards a day, one day above another, Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. We have agreed as a local church here to worship on Sunday. The Lord's Day, we refer to it. And I think Sunday is an excellent occasion. I think it's a wonderful day. I kind of miss, in a sense, the blue laws of days gone by when I was growing up, when everyone in society basically, except for essential, uh, I don't even like using that word anymore because we've learned that every job is essential because everybody contributes to society, but hospitalization, urgent, emergency services, um, those are the only things that used to work when I was young. And, And neighbors, believers and unbelievers, those of different traditions, used to have a day off together. And it's sad that that's gone. Yet we are not under the law. We can't enforce Sunday as a Sabbath. You can worship on Thursday if your church decides to do so. You can worship on Saturday if your church decides to do so uh, if they wish. But we are not permitted to place anyone under the law by forcing them to observe a Sabbath 
day. Christ himself is our rest. With this scene, and I've had many discussions with uh, those who are opposed to worship on Sunday. Opposed, say we are breaking the Sabbath. They don't understand the rest we get in Christ. And uh, 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 the most common ones that we'll run into are the Seventh-day Adventists that demand that uh, those who are really righteous have to worship on uh, Saturday. Folks, you read Galatians chapter 5. By keeping any part of the law, you're obligating yourself to keep the entire law. You can't just keep one thing out of it. And, and it's interesting how when groups go to Sabbatarianism, no matter which tradition it comes out of, they always end up migrating towards things like dietary restrictions. Wanting to read and really, really become uh, involved in feasts in different traditions of Judaism. It never stops at the day. They're like, well, we've done here. We've got to do something more. That's a misunderstanding of the gospel. Uh, We as Christians are under God's grace. This church agrees to assemble on the first day of the week. Enough on that. In verse 3, the women didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus and they were perplexed about this. They were confused. They couldn't understand what had happened. At one point we see in in the account in John chapter 20 that Mary Magdalene is weeping. She's found weeping and and a voice comes and asks, Why are you weeping? And and she replies, Because they have taken away my Lord and, and I don't know where they've laid him. So Mary doesn't get it yet. She doesn't understand. The women still didn't believe in the bodily resurrection. It must be somewhere else. They've laid him elsewhere. Mary thought the body might have been stolen. There's good reason for this because the religious elite had been preparing for that to happen. Matthew 27 verse 62 says, The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate, and they asked Pilate, Give orders for the grave that it might be secured until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. And the last deception, they say, will be worse than the first. So the Pharisees who were known for a belief in the resurrection, they didn't even believe in the resurrection. They didn't think that he was going to rise from the dead. They wanted to prevent a hoax. They thought that the the disciples would contrive a hoax on the people Obviously, they didn't believe in the resurrection, so nobody believes in the resurrection. Nobody really expects to find an empty tomb. Until when? Until when? Well, we see until they hear the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel. And the women are the ones who hear it first. And they hear it from two men that are there. Verse 4, Two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing, Uh, John, the Gospel of John clarifies these are angels. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee? Listen to this. He said that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men to be crucified and on the third day rise again. So thus the women hear the gospel first. He's going to be delivered in the hands of sinful men. He's going to be crucified. He will rise from the dead. And then what happens? 
Then what happens? Well, it says they remembered. They remembered Jesus' words, and they returned from the tomb, and they reported all these things to the eleven, eleven remaining apostles, and all the rest. And now there were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, also the other women. Remember we talked about Salome. Several other women were probably there, and they were telling them these things to the apostles, but the words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. So here we go again, not believing. Even the eleven themselves are unbelieving. And nobody has seen Jesus yet. Still, they're unbelieving. Nonetheless, Peter heard that a grave was empty, and he got up, and we know from the Gospel of John, he ran with another disciple, and he got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home just marveling at what had happened. Peter's reaction to the empty tomb, it's a little bit inconclusive. The, the Greek word for marveling uh, suggests that an astonishment. He was astonished at what he saw. Uh, it doesn't really substantiate uh, a, saving bla- uh, a saving belief in what had happened uh, one way or another. It's, it's hard to discern for certain. The reaction of the other disciple and the other disciples, the other ten as well, uh, that's even more blurred. Because John chapter 28 verse 8 says that after finding the linen wrappings, that other disciple, the second disciple, that had run with Peter, had first come to the tomb, and he also entered, and he saw and believed. But it continues, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead again. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. You know, maybe at this point that one did believe. We aren't sure about the other disciples. It appears the rest returned to their home. Some might have been believing. Uh, it says that they didn't really understand that he must die and rise again. Uh, it wasn't really until Mary Magdalene comes later. Mary is the one who is standing there weeping, who Jesus appeared to first. And uh, she arrives later and she tells all of them that she had seen the risen Lord. She has seen him. Um, and, and she is now the first to be a witness to the living Christ, uh, an eyewitness, that is, uh, among humans. Now, it's important to discern one thing, because you go to the four Gospels, and you try to harmonize them, it's challenging. It's not impossible, but it is challenging. Each one adds somewhat uh, different detail, uh, but Scripture does not emphasize our need to understand the chronology of every single event this morning. There was a lot uh, on this morning. There was a lot of confusion going on. The, the, the ladies had come from different origins, uh, and had, as some of them had uh, gotten together before they got to the tomb. We see the disciples were nearby, but they weren't at the tomb. There was running back and forth, there was confusion. Uh, we aren't really told that we have to have an exact chronology of who got there first, who saw what first, who believed first. That's not the focus of the passage. We don't have to conclusively understand the whole picture. The focus of the passage is that every single one of them expected to find the body of Jesus there still dead. That's what everyone thought they would find, but He is alive. 
the grave is empty and he is alive. And the, the empty tomb, the repeated uh, uh, statements about the empty tomb prove that this is a physical resurrection. It's not a phantom resurrection. There's not a body left behind. What is left behind is linens. Just linens sitting there. The body is gone. Folks, Jesus isn't portrayed as a phantom. A disembodied type spirit. He is raised bodily from the dead. And Jesus' resurrection is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as the first fruits. The first fruits of a, of a much greater harvest that is to arrive later on. It will come. Once again, this, uh, our prayer meeting from this past Wednesday, as we were studying first, through 1 Corinthians 15, we landed on this exact same passage this past week. The resurrection from the dead. We're going to read part of it uh, during the Lord's Supper. But they have overlapped this topic of the resurrection of the first fruits. But for those who weren't here with us uh, Wednesday, the Jewish feast of the first fruits, called the feast or festival of first fruits, it took place at the initiation, the, the very beginning of the harvest. While the rest of the, the crop, the rest of the harvest was still standing out in the field, the people of Israel were to grab a small bundle or a basket of of the fruit of the harvest, and they were to bring it to the priest, and they were to offer it as a display of how faithful God is before uh, the priest and before the Lord. Um, the, the priest would display it. Actually, it says that the priest would take it and would wave it. Would, would make a big deal out of it, waving it, waving the first fruits before the Lord. Uh, it was a way to uh, show uh, Yahweh the Lord God of Israel, their appreciation for him for what God has provided, a full harvest. Now consider this physical display of Jesus as he's being displayed now uh, before man as the first fruits of a greater harvest that is still sitting in the field. Deuteronomy 26 says that when the Israelites displayed or when they waved their first fruits of the harvest, uh, they were in effect acknowledging that God had delivered them from bondage in Egypt. That was the signification of the first fruits. They were to come into the land, and when they had their own land, the promised land, uh, they were to display this, that they're in their own land, that they had been delivered from bondage. Uh, they had been delivered from slavery, and God had set them free. That's the significance of the Feast of first fruits. Deuteronomy 26 verse 2 says, You shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you bring in from your land uh, that the Lord your God gives you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. You shall go to the priest who is in the office at that time and say to him, I declare this day to the Lord my God that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then Moses told them, this is what they were to say. These are the words they were supposed to say. Now behold, I have brought the first of the produce of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me, and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. 
They would bring the first fruit. It would be on display. They would wave it as an acknowledgement that God had delivered them from slavery. And they would worship in that way. What a picture of bowing to Christ. That he is the first fruits that we have been delivered from sin and that he has now been resurrected and we are in the promised land of God. Um, we worship Jesus. That's what this represents. That is how he is the first fruits. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it tells us. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Euphemism for those who had passed away or died. For since by a man, that's named Adam, came death, by a man named Jesus also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Which all? Well, it says, but each in his own order, Christ is the firstfruits, and after that, those who belong to Christ at his coming. We are all made alive, those who belong to Christ. So our bodies, our physically bo- uh, physical bodies that are in the grave, will also rise at Christ's second coming. Verse 35 asks, this is Paul now poising this question on behalf of the church in Corinth. Verse 35 asks, But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, he says. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain. Meaning when our body goes in the ground, it's like a bare grain going in. It's just the start of something. Uh, And Paul says, perhaps wheat or something, using it as an example. But God gives it a body just as he has wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. your, Your current body will act as a seed for when Christ returns and raises us again from the grave. Verse 42, so also, this is 1 Corinthians still, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, so we have now. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. That's why we call it a glorified body. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, meaning the natural man who's still in sin. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And Paul says, if there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So what does that spiritual body look like, you're all wondering. Well, first, how is this going to work out for the souls who are in heaven? The souls right now who are in heaven. Well, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14 says this, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain, that's speaking of those who are on earth when Christ returns, uh, those of us who remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, at the same time, 
and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. So when Jesus returns, the dead will rise first as imperishable, and we who remain will join them, will be caught up in the clouds with them. And what kind of body do we get? I know we want to know that. Well, it says, fortunately, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, meaning we won't all die. There will be some alive when Christ returns. But we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. So we're going to get the same exact body that those who are raised will get. And what does that look like? Well, this all together means we're going to be raised with a spiritual body like Jesus' body. We need to know what that looks like. Is it a spirit? Is it a ghost? Is it an apparition of some kind that we just kind of float up into the sky? No, folks. Jesus was raised with a physical body. We're going to learn this later in this chapter as there's going to be Numerous appearances as we finish out uh, chapter 24. He's going to appear multiple times to emphasize this. In verse 36, just a taste of what we're going to see. It says that Jesus himself stood in their midst and said to the disciples, Peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. That, That means ghost or apparition. And Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. And and Jesus says this, For a spirit does not have flesh and bones. He's saying an apparition does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus has flesh and bones, hands and feet. And when Jesus had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet while they could, uh, still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you got anything to eat? They gave him a piece of a broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate, ate before them. This is emphasizing the literal, physical, bodily resurrection from the dead. Our, our transformed spiritual bodies are going to have flesh and bones. We're going to have hands and feet. We're going to get hungry. We're going to have appetites. We're going to have stomachs. And Jesus said to them later on this same day, John 20, verse 19, says, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples then rejoiced at what they saw. Folks, remember this. When, when Scripture tells us that we are going to receive a spiritual body, doesn't suggest that we're going to be a ghost or a phantom of any kind, a disembodied spirit. We will have a physical body that is spiritual, meaning that it's no longer in corruption, no longer in sin, no, more, no longer corrupted by sin. And when Christ returns, our bodies will be raised from the dead. If we're still alive, we're going to be caught up, we're going to be changed, and we're going to be imperishable and incorruptible. That's what our bodies are going to 
to be like. We're going to uh, study the bodily resurrection, the, the appearances of Christ throughout the remainder of Luke, where he appears as a man. We're going to discover that he walked, that he talked, that he touched, that he reclined, that he ate. At one point, Jesus vanishes. I don't know at all how that works. No idea at all. He appeared to more than 500 at one time. He starts a charcoal fire. Jesus barbecues. That's what I, I bet it's good. And then he ascends bodily into heaven. Um, folks, he, he was raised from the dead, and he was the first of a great harvest that still stands in the field. It's yet to come. When he returns, our bodies will be raised and transformed to be just like his. I'm going to ask the men to come forward now to serve the Lord's Supper. Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in a virgin. He was born of a woman, the flesh of a woman. He became flesh himself. Uh, That means that God uh, became incarnate. Scripture says uh, the Word became flesh and he dwelt amongst us. Being the Holy Son of God, he lived a sinless life. And when the time had come, he offered himself to be crucified on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. His blood was shed, his flesh died, and then he was buried. But on that third day, he rose again according to the Scriptures. Folks, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose from the dead, we invite you to share with us what we all share in common.